In the case of Brazil, we were down there making a documentary film. Partly for the government, but mostly, mostly for a Hollywood studio. This was at the time of the good neighbor policy. And it was my task to make a large technicolor documentary on the subject of the carnival. And so we took up the whole question of samba and the samba orchestra. And when I'd nearly finished the film, it occurred to me that the origins of samba lay in voodoo ceremonies, particularly in Shangu, which are practiced up in uh, the favelas, those strange native settlements on the mountains, which are right in the midst of the city of Rio. And so I arranged with a good deal of difficulty to film a voodoo ceremony. And uh, we had protracted conversations with the head of the group. And uh, an advance payment was arranged for. He came to my office in Rio to discuss it. And it was my unhappy lot to have to tell him that the filming was off because I had just received word from Hollywood that the president of the film studio had been rather abruptly removed. A new president was in his place and the entire project was off. There was no more money to spend on voodoo ceremonies. And the witch doctor assured me that this was deeply offensive and uh, that he and his group took it very badly. And I said, I was most sorry about it myself. I did want to finish the film and I did hope he understood. Ah, but he said, we have spent money. We have bought entirely new costumes. And I said, well, I'm awfully sorry, but there just isn't any money from Hollywood to pay you. And I, I don't know how I can explain to this new administration that the voodoo ceremony must continue, certainly not in the time already agreed on. And I was called away to the telephone again, left the doctor in my office, had a long conversation on the phone, begging and pleading to be allowed to finish this picture, which we rather liked. The material was very interesting, and I thought it would be a good thing to to finish since so much effort had gone into it. And I was pleading my cause for some time, praying that we would be able to. And I came back to the office and found that the doctor had gone, having been told that the deal was completely off. And that on my desk, in a script of the film, was a long steel needle. It had been driven entirely through the script. To the needle was attached a length of red wool. This was the mark of the voodoo. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film. We were never allowed to finish it. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 131. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight Orson Welles' time as The Shadow in 1937-38. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Peter Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1 in B-flat minor. It's a beautiful piece used by Orson Welles in many radio productions.
Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash group slash the Wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is very much on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Alec Wolcott got so angry with me once at a party he introduced me because he was the one who kind of started me again in show business and he presented me as somebody at a party that should be interesting. And there I was, 19 years old, there wasn't anything interesting to say about me. I hadn't done anything in America. He says, well, Orson was born in Peking. And I said, no. And a look of hatred came over Alex's face when I had told him it was Kenosha, Wisconsin. Instead of speaking, because it was the only interesting thing he could think of to say. <laughs> in the spring of 1935, 19-year-old Orson Welles was living in New York, appearing on stage in Catherine Cornell's stock company, and working on CBS's American School of the Air and The March of Time. Today has published the most comprehensive treatise on Americanisms to date, the book whose previous editions were read in England, translated into German. H.L. Mencken's 769 page, The American Language. On the future of the American language, says Mr. Mencken. The influence of 125 million people, practically all headed in one direction, is too great to be resisted by the minority in England. Wherever the king's English comes into competition with the president's American, American tends to prevail. The international language of the future may look like English, but it will sound like American. The next year, Wells was on the debut episode of CBS's Columbia Workshop. The program's creator, Irving Reese, recognized Orson's talent. While Wells studied the creative risks, the workshop took. He began to assemble his Mercury Theater troupe, just as FDR launched the Federal Theater Project. John Houseman invited Wells to be part of an African-American theater unit in Harlem. Their first co-production was an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Wells changed the setting to a mythical island. Voodoo took the place of Scottish witchcraft. The play opened on April 14, 1936 at the Lafayette Theater. It received incredible reviews. Untimely rip! How can it be the tongue that tells me so? And be these juggling fiends no more believe. Hell King! Behold! Where stands the usurper's cursed head? The time is free! All hail Malcolm! Peace! The charms wound up!
By that autumn, Wells was traveling between Chicago and New York, appearing on Mutual Broadcasting's Wonder Show and on the Columbia Workshop. The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously and didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war. It was mm -hmm. only seven years. Mm -hmm. The golden age of radio. At this time, we were trying to find out how to do it. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were learning skills. We were sharpening and honing our abilities. If you saw, good heavens, predating the War of the Worlds by a, a year, when Irving Reese did The Fall of a City in 37, spring of 37, The Fall of a City by Archibald McLeish, a first play with one of America's outstanding poets, a man who was so impressed by the medium of radio that he submitted to Irving Reese in the Columbia Workshop a verse play for radio. And who directed that? Irving Reese with all of the directorial staff of CBS assisting him. Yeah, that was a mammoth Earl production. Earl McGill, Brewster Morgan, myself, Bill Spear, all assisting. Orson Welles' as narrator, Burgess Meredith, the chief orator. Names that we conjure with now were just kids then. Yeah, Orson Welles was probably about 22, 23, 23 at the time. Uh, 20, uh, 2 and 37, 23 at the time of the other show. And then you uh, use a big mammoth studio or you rented a, a National Guard Hall or something to get special uh, the 7th effects. 7th Regiment Armory on Park Avenue. Yeah. So that was uh, remote. Uh, it was done live, the whole show. Yeah, it was done live, but it was remote from the armory. And that was to get what, the effect of the crowd or something? Uh, what Irving wanted to get was an outdoor perspective, dead air, outdoor, no reverb. He put his cast in this vast armory. Now, I, my responsibility was crowd direction. We had a crowd of 150 people. The crowd was a character in the play as the Greeks wrote for the chorus. Mm -hmm. They had no words, but they had reactions. And I was the cheerleader for the crowd. <laughs> but to limit that, to control a small orchestra, but with very piercing primitive instruments, I mean, with that woodwinds and tambours and so on, to control that, to control the narrator, Wells worked in an isolation booth, which were quite new in those days. All of this to give an impression of great space without reverberation, because Irving was a genius at this kind of conception. Unheard of in those days, unheard of today. What television producer gives a damn about sound? They pump all this $250,000 production through a four-inch speaker. On Sunday, April 11, 1937, as producer-director William N. Robeson just noted, the workshop broadcast a verse play written especially for radio by Archibald MacLeish. It was called The Fall of the City. It was an allegory on the rise of fascism. The broadcast took place at the massive 7th Regiment Armory on 67th Street and Park Avenue in New York. Reese used over 150 extras and entrusted Wells to be the narrator. To get proper sonic differentiation, they built radio's first narration booth. We are here on the central plaza. We are well off to the eastward edge. There's a kind of terrace over the crowd here. It is precisely four minutes to twelve. The crowd is enormous. There might be ten thousand. There might be more. The whole square is faces. Opposite over the roofs of the mountains. It is quite clear. There are birds circling. We think they are kites by the look. They're very high. The tomb is off to the right somewhere. We can't see for the great crowd. Close to us here are the cabinet ministers. They stand on a raised platform with awnings. The farmers' wives are squatting on the stones. Their children have fallen asleep on their shoulders. The heat is harsh. The light dazzles like metal. It dazes the air as the clang of a gong does. It is one minute to twelve now. There is still no sign. 
They are still waiting. No one doubts that she will come. No one doubts that she will speak, too. Three times she has not spoken. Now it is twelve. Now they are rising. Now the whole plaza is rising. Fathers are lifting their small children. The plume fans on the platform are motionless. There's no sound but the shuffle of shoe leather. Now even the shoes are still... We can hear the hawks. It is as quiet as that now. It is strange to see such throngs so silent. Nothing yet. Nothing has happened. Wait. There's a stir here to the right of us. They're turning their heads. The crowd turns. The cabinet ministers lean from their balcony. There's no sound, only the turning. First the waters rose with no wind. Listen. That is she. She's speaking. Then the stones of the temple kindled without flame or tinder of maize leaves. They see her beyond us. The crowd sees her. Then there were cries in the night haze, words in a once-heard tongue, the air rustling above us as at dawn with herons. Now it is I who must bring fear, I who am four days dead, the tears still unshed for me, all of them. I for whom a child still calls at nightfall. Death is young in me to fear. My dress is kept still in the press in my bedchamber. No one has broken the dish of the dead woman. Nevertheless, I must speak painfully. I am to stand here in the sun and speak. The city of masterless men will take a master. There will be shouting men, blood after. <laughs> do not ask what it means. I do not know. Only sorrow and no hope for it. She is gone. No, they are still looking. It is hard to return from the time past. I have come in the dream we must learn to dream where the crumbling of time like the ash from a burnt string has stopped for me. For you, the thread still burns. You take the feathery ash upon your fingers. You bring yourselves from the time past as it pleases you. It is hard to return to the old nearness. Harder to go again. She is gone. We know because the crowd is closing. All we can see is the crowd closing. We hear the releasing of held breath, the weight shifting, the lifting of shoe leather. The stillness is broken as surface of water is broken, the sound circling from in outward. Small wonder they feel fear. Before the murders of the famous kings, before imperial cities burned and fell, the dead were said to show themselves and speak. When dead men came, disaster came. Presentiments that let the living on their beds sleep on woke dead men out of death and gave them voices. Masterless men! When shall it be? Masterless men will take a master. What has she said to us? When shall it be? The Fall of the City was selected by the New York Times as one of the outstanding broadcasts of 1937. Time Magazine noted that it proved to listeners radio was science's gift to poetry and poetic drama. 
the fall of the city made Orson Welles a star. Mutual Broadcasting was about to give him the opportunity of a lifetime.